Hello, everybody. Welcome to History Hit. This is a very special episode and a very special day. It is the 6th of June, 19. It's not the 6th of June, 1944. It's the 6th of June, 2019. It's the 75th anniversary of D Days. I've seen all over social media and traditional media today. I've almost lost my voice. I've had uh, a day of extreme uh, emotion and excitement. Began at five in the morning on a ship full of veterans crossing the English Channel. It then involved me running two miles to Bayeux Cemetery after the French police closed all the roads and doing live TV, sweating profusely and looking like a lunatic. I was lucky enough to meet some remarkable veterans there. It'll be hard ever to forget about Bert Chandler and Frank Diffel, great friends. Bert was in the US 1st Division that landed on Omaha Beach. Frank Diffel was one of the landing craft, British landing craft crew that drove him to the beach and still firm friends now. Bert came from Idaho today to sit alongside Frank at the commemorations. I caught up with George Skipper again, whose story is featured on the podcast yesterday and whose interview is featured on History Hit TV. This podcast as a D-Day special. It is with the historian James Holland. He's been on the podcast many times. He's one of the best Second World War historians out there. Uh, a wonderful man, a friend to this podcast and, and a fantastic historian. Please go and check out his new book on D-Day. The interview is an extended version of this podcast as an interview shot for History Hit TV. We have had a record couple of days on History Hit TV, and that's because we've put huge amount of work into making sure that it is the premier D-Day destination in the world. Please, please go and have a look if you haven't done so before. We've got a special, special offer. Actually, a crazy offer. It's five months for just five pounds, euros or dollars to mark this D-Day anniversary. You just use the code D-Day, D-D-A-Y, and you will get... And, and well, now depressingly, until the winter, till next winter, almost until Christmas, for the cost of only five pounds or dollars, that is less than the cost of the price of beer in a particularly smart bar. Please head over and do that. I'm now relaxing on the river cruise because I've come on the history hits riverboat trip of the uh, Normandy beaches and of Rouen. It sold out so fast the first run that um, we were unable really to advertise it. But if you go to historyhit.com/dday you will be able to buy tickets to our next D-Day and Normandy cruise. It is in October. Please come and join me. We're going to travel up and down the rivers of Normandy. You're going to love it. Historyit.com slash D-Day. Anyway, that's everything out of the way. Now, here's James Holland telling you everything you need to know about the Day of Days. Enjoy. I feel the hand of history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. James Holland, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. I feel like I say this at the beginning of every podcast you do, but you've written another book. I mean, what, I, I, you make me wonder what I'm doing in my life. And this is not just some uh, copy and paste job. This is a magisterial account of D-Day. James, why did D-Day happen when it happened? It goes back to December 1941, because um, as soon as America got in the war, the, the British got on some ships and sailed straight over to, um, straight over to Washington and had the Arcadia Conference. And that's where they agreed they were going to do the Germany first policy, so that the Pacific and the war against Japan was going to be of secondary importance compared to kind of overrunning Nazi Germany, getting, getting rid of the Nazis forever. 
Can you give me a sense of just how complex it was planning for D-Day? The original plan was to start the build-up of American troops and material on Britain literally straight away. And I think the first troops were from the 34th Red Bull Division, which is a National Guard division from the Midwest. And they arrived, I think, around the 24th of January 1942. And the plan originally was to actually launch an invasion in 1942. And the British were very much kind of sort of, yeah, yeah, whatever, just, you know, get your backsides over here. Um, and it very quickly became clear that they just didn't have the strength or the material or the training to do anything in 1942. So it's pushed back to 1943. But the Americans had promised the Russians they would get into battle in 1942. And so, the, so Churchill came up with a solution. He said, well, look, why don't, you, why don't you land a force in North Africa? Because then you can attack Vichy France. Uh, and that would be a good thing. Um, because we can knock them out of the war. We can encourage, you know, we can make life difficult for them. We can, we can become masters of the North African shores. That might hustle Italy out of the war, and that would be a good thing. Um, and we can kind of take it from there. And at the same time, you can sort of blood your American troops a little bit. And, and Roosevelt goes, the president, obviously says, that's a great idea. I'm all over that like a rash. Uh, General George Marshall, who is the chief of staff of the, of the US Army, less keen, but was persuaded by the president. And so that, that's basically what happened. And, and that landing happened, you know, in, um, in early November 1942, following the kind of the, the Montgomery's victory at, um, at Alamein in, in sort of late October, early November 1942. And then, of course, they finally won in Tunisia in, in, on the 13th of May 1943. So it took a little while. But uh, General Alexander was able to signal and say, you know, we are now commanders of the North African shores. Um, but you've now got this vast armies and air forces and naval forces in the Mediterranean. You might as well do something with them. It was absolutely clear by that stage that you weren't going to be doing a cross-channel invasion in 1943. So then he thought, well, maybe we should go into Sicily then. And that, that, was a, that had been agreed at the Casablanca Conference in January 1943. And so they're going to Sicily. And the whole point of going into Sicily is, again, to kind of sort of really, you know, the, the, the Italians are absolutely teetering. So let's knock them out of the war. Let's get rid of Mussolini. And then again, we can sort of take it from there. It's a kind of opportunistic strategy, which is very much the British way. And it wasn't really the American way. The Americans kind of, you know, what's the quickest way to Berlin? Draw a line, right, that's our route, you know. So this, they weren't kind of 100% happy about this. But then having, having toppled Mussolini and having won in, um, won in Sicily in, in 36 days, they then think, well, actually, it's quite a good case for going into southern Italy. And it's actually General Marshall, George Marshall, who says, yeah, actually, okay, well, we can go into southern Italy on the condition that the airfields are the priority. So suddenly, you know, suddenly the Allies get sucked into Italy and that pushes D-Day back, uh, the cross-channel invasion, Operation Overlord, into Normandy back yet more. And eventually the date is settled upon. It's going to be the 5th of June, Monday, the 5th of June, 1944. Then, of course, there's a bad weather and it gets delayed by 24 hours, which is why they finally go, you know, two and a half years late um, on, uh, on the 6th of June, 1944. Why is, June, why is June the 5th important? June the 5th, the reason they choose that date is it's all to do with moons and tides and so on. The whole, the whole timing of D-Day is a bit of a fudge, to be honest, because it's absolutely important. The, the most important thing about D-Day is that it doesn't fail. To do that, you really, really need to secure your flanks so that you can, you can join up on a broad front and just push forward and, and not be worrying about what's happening on your left and right. It's absolutely vital. The key to that are airborne forces. Airborne forces need to drop at night beforehand. Bombers need to come over, the, the, the ships need to come over in darkness. So really you want to land at kind of sort of just after dawn, you know, where, where the first sort of grey of dawn is coming and then the bombers can come over, they can then see their targets. Um, the invasion fleet arrives at, 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 in daylight, so, so 
the guys on the on the ships can also see their their targets. Um, you want moon because you're dropping your airborne forces before the naval forces and landing forces arrive. So they need a bit of moonlight so they can see what's going on. So that is, it's a question of sort of when do, when do all those factors sort of come into play? And June the 5th is one of those days and, and June the 6th is, is not a bad alternative. You could possibly get away with it on the 7th, 8th, you're pushing your luck. And then it's kind of waiting another couple of weeks. So, you know, there are limited windows and June the 5th is the, is the most obvious one. And the whole point about D-Day is to try and keep it secret. It's not that, that the invasion is going to happen. The Germans know that. It's keeping it secret right to the last minute as to where, when exactly and where it's going to land. Um, and so the whole thing is shrouded in secrecy. The naval forces are heading off. And of course, what they've got to do is clear, clear massive mine, mine channels. So there's going to be two channels for each of the invasion beaches. Um, which have got to be swept, and they've got to be swept constantly because there's these strong winds, there's strong tides and all the rest of it, so floating mines can kind of move and shift. Um, it's an absolutely incredible operation, and of course, a lot of the guys have already been on the boats because they've already loaded up on the kind of on the 3rd and 4th of June, ready for the invasion on the 5th. So they've been sat there for kind of, you know, long periods, you know, all cooped up, crammed into these ships, which, you know, not really designed to take the numbers that they're being asked to take. And... You know, particularly if you're on a flat bottom ship, you know, a landing craft, like a, like a, a landing ship, um, extremely uncomfortable, it has to be said. But I mean, it, it is, again, you know, just the logistics of getting, getting over there. I mean, I'm sure you've been to these tunnels, um, Dan, but, but I hadn't appreciated until a few years ago that there was a whole tunnel network um, under the hills above Portsmouth that were dug in. And that's where the kind of whole planning for Operation Neptune, which is the naval part of the plan, was actually carrying out. And there's these huge tunnels. I mean, it's kind of the sort of thing the Nazis do rather than the Brits, but, but right under kind of Portsdown Hill. It's absolutely amazing. And that's where, they, that's where they sort of planned it all and that's where they were carrying it all out. But I mean, again, the logistics of it are just absolutely mind-blowing. So what about the day of days itself, D-Day? What happened just after midnight? First ones down are, are the um, glider troops of the um, D Company, the Ox and Bucks, which are landing on Pegasus Bridge and Horsa Bridge. And these are two vital bridges to capture because what they want to do is catch them intact. So beyond those two, two rivers on the eastern flank of the invasion front is this ridge. Beyond that, there is a low-lying valley again of the River Deve. So the plan is to send down airborne forces, destroy all the bridges over the, over the River Deve so that the Germans can't then use them, then hold that high ground. And to hold, get on t- enough troops to hold that high ground, they need Pegasus Bridge and Horsa Bridge, which crosses the Orne River and the Con Canal, to be kept intact. So that is given to glider troops. The whole plan, although... It is General Windy Gale of the 6th Airborne who is overall in charge. The actual planning is given to Brigadier James Hill, who is, um, is the 3rd Parachute Brigade commander. Uh, and he thinks it's a good idea to come down in gliders on Pegasus and Horsebridge, as they've been codenamed, because he thinks that's the only way they can have that real sort of guarantee, get enough men right on the target. Um, and so they're really superly well-trained. They, they've learned from their mistakes over Sicily where glider pilots are going absolutely all over the place. And now they're kind of turning them into a kind of the pilots themselves into a kind of elite troops. They're fighting troops as well as, as pilots. 
Uh, and actually, they get it absolutely spot on. They're followed immediately afterwards by the 22nd Independent Parachute Company, which are the pathfinders for the main parachute drop, who then come in a little bit later. Meanwhile, on the western flank, um, it's the 82nd Airborne that are coming in first and the 101st Airborne that are coming in second. And they're, they're securing the western flank and providing backup for the American landings at Utah Beach, which is also at the base of the, the Cotentin Peninsula. The main invasion front is that long, straight kind of sort of uh, north-facing coastline that runs from sort of west to east along the Normandy coast. But there is this kind of finger that sticks up and, and finishes up with Cherbourg, and that's the Cotentin Peninsula. So lots and lots of, of airborne troops landing at night in, you know, not particularly brilliant weather, um, but it, is, it isn't raining. You know, there are patches of cloud, but, but fairly strong winds. There's a bit of a legend, isn't it, that the airborne troops were sort of all over the place. Did, did they actually land in the right place? The interesting thing about the uh, American airborne plans is they do go a bit haywire, but actually, if you look at it, they don't go anything like as haywire as the narrative, traditional narrative would would suggest. So, of the eleven thousand plus American airborne troops, no, thirteen thousand one hundred American airborne troops that are dropped, fifty um, percent land within one to two miles of the drop zone, seventy-five uh, percent land within five miles and only 10% land more than 10 miles away. And, you know, these guys are supremely fit. They're incredibly well trained. They're fantastically good at using their initiative and all the rest of it. You'd have thought kind of, you know, five miles to tab in kind of four or five hours isn't that big a task really. And yet very, very few of them managed to actually make their way across the kind of mile or two that they've got to get to by the time they're supposed to be there. And of course, that's because they're completely discombobulated because you're landing down and it's all very well having maps and compasses and stuff. But if you don't know what your start point is, it's very difficult to get there. And of course, the nature of a stick of paratroopers is they're not all landing in the same spot like a glider, a bunch of glider troops are. So you're, you're kind of separated from your buddies and you're making ad hoc groups of, of guys who aren't necessarily in your platoon or company or whatever. Um, and you're having to kind of work out where you are and then get to your... Your, your, your drop zone or your, your target point, your objective. And of course, that's why it takes so much longer than they originally think it's going to. But actually, despite the chaos, the airborne troops, whether they be Americans or whether they be British, actually do exactly what they're supposed to do. I mean, all the bridges over the River Deves are destroyed. The, America, uh, the, the British managed to take the high ground um, between the two valleys. Um, the Horsa Bridge and Pegasus Bridge are captured intact. Um, that all goes to plan. Um, the actual planning for the, air, the American airborne dro drop has been changed at the last minute. Um, and it's, it's not a particularly good plan. I think, I think the concentration of where they put troops is, is not... There's not enough focus on Carentan, which is this, this town with a lock system and rivers and very much the hinge between Utah Beach and Omaha Beach. And not enough 101st Airborne troops are sent to secure that on D-Day night. But, you know, all things being said, it's still incredibly successful. And, and when you compare it to Sicily a year before, which was an absolute fiasco in terms of airborne operations, it's a vast, vast, vast improvement. So what's the next Allied tool that they deploy there's the heavy bombers so the strategic bombers which are used to operating completely independent of ground forces but have been kind of brought in to kind of help with the preparations for d-day so they've been bombing gun installations and those railway marshalling yards in the weeks running up to d-day and they're now brought in to kind of you know try and hammer coastal uh, um, positions and german positions and so on 
um, followed by the opening salvos of the invasion fleet, you know, the warships, and there's 1,213 of them. Uh, and they're all sort of blasting away as well. And then, you know, at 6.30, it's time for the Americans to land. And then because of the, the tides and because the, the British are landing, and Canadians are landing a little bit further east, they're, they're coming in at about 7.30. So that's the kind of the timings for it, really. Was that aerial bombing and the naval gunfire support, was it successful? The, the Allies are using steel, not flesh. They're using their huge global reach, their unbelievable industrial might, their access to world resources, um, mechanisation, motorisation, technology, to do as much of the hard jobs as you possibly can and keep the numbers of troops at the coalface of war to an absolute bare minimum. And broadly speaking, over the, over the course of the war, they do this incredibly well and successfully. The problem is... You still need infantry and guys in tanks to do that initial probing. You, you've still got to put them over there. They've still got to put their heads above the parapets. They've got to expose themselves and actually do the hard yards to enable all the other assets to kind of be able to sort of bring themselves to bear. And for them, the Second World War is incredibly dangerous. Now, if you take the British Second Army in Normandy, for example, only 16% as infantry, 7% as armour, I think 18% are engineers, 43% are service corps. And that's, that's why we're so successful, because we have this incredibly long tail. The operational level is so good. But when it comes to invasions, it is the infantry that have to expose themselves. They, you know, they're particularly doing that on D-Day. There is just no way around that. And in the first waves, even against Omaha Beach, which is being absolutely pummeled, those 85 machine guns can cause an awful lot of damage. And they do. And, and, you know, all the scenes that we've seen in Saving Private Ryan and all the rest of it, that happens at certain points on the beach. It's not universal, incidentally. So at Verville at one end of the, of the beach and at Colville at the other, you know, it is a bit of a slaughter in those initial first waves. But even in the early waves, you know, men from the 116th Infantry, which is the 29th Infantry Division, which are those ones that get absolutely decimated in, in, the, in the first moments as the as kind of ramps are going down and two landing craft are completely destroyed by mortars falling in them before the before the ramps even go down before they even reach the, reach the shore for example so that's kind of i think it was something like 90 out of 120 20 guys in 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 one company in the 116th are kind of basically wiped out just like that so obviously those casualty figures are just absolutely horrific but it's not universal and if you look at after action reports of, of other companies and other platoons in the 116th Infantry. Lots of them are saying, you know, got across the beach with one wounded and one dead. Got across the beach with no casualties whatsoever. And these are guys in the first wave. You know, these guys are landing kind of just after 6.30 or around kind of 10 to 7 in the morning, things like that. So it's, it's not across the board. And in actual fact, you know, actual um, allied, allied troops dead, and that includes British, incidentally, because a vast majority of the people um, uh, manning the landing craft are British. Um, total dead on Omaha Beach. It was 842, which is obviously a huge number, but it is, you know, it's not kind of first day of the Somme levels. Uh, and I think it's probably not as high as most people would suspect it actually was. Wow. So you're saying even on Omaha, actually, it was pretty one-sided. What was the, what was the plan? Was the armour supposed to land first or was it supposed to be a kind of mixture of infantry, engineers and armour? So the plan was to get infantry off first, but with engineers kind of, you know, absolutely hot on their tails to sort of blast holes through wire and mines and, and kind of sea walls and all that kind of stuff. So, so infantry and engineers are sort of going off kind of in, in, in tandem. The problem you have at Juno and Sword Beaches, which are the two most kind of eastern end. So it goes, you know, on that main front, it's, it's Utah on the, on the Cotentin Peninsula, then Omaha Beach, which is about five miles, then Gold Beach, which is a similar kind of length. 
then Juneau, the Canadians, and then Sword Beach. The problem there is, is the, um, the actual beaches are nothing like as broad, as wide, as, as deep rather, as they are at Omaha um, and, and Utah. So the time in which you've got between kind of low tide and high tide is much less. So there's, there's horrific congestion, particularly at Juneau Beach and, and, and Sword Beach, where guys are getting off the infantry, getting off the beach really quickly. Um, at Juno Beach, for example, at Santa Bar, they've very carefully worked out where everyone's going to go, and they managed to get tanks off pretty quickly. But they discover that they can't actually get the tanks through some of the streets because they're really narrow. And they had, you know, they're looking at maps and stuff, and they just hadn't twigged that some of the narrow streets in Santa Ban are too narrow for tanks and kind of, you know, uh, and kind of armoured fighting vehicles to actually get through. So th there is some unexpected sort of problems that arise. The problem at Sword Beach is, is it's this swollen division of 3rd Division, which is, you know, an infantry division is normally about 16,000 men, something like that. But it's swollen to about 23,000 because they've got all these commandos attached. And the reason the commandos attached is because they're hot-footing it up to Pegasus Bridge and Horsa Bridge to get across and help support the airborne forces on the top of that ridge that I mentioned earlier on. And that's absolutely right. I mean, the most important thing about D-Day is that it doesn't fail. That trumps any other objective. And sometimes... Actually, your objective of making sure D-Day doesn't fail go hand in hand. But, for example, there's been a huge amount of criticism for the fact that British Second Army don't reach Caen on day one. It's really interesting, but the objective of getting Caen on day one is actually set by, by Mars Dempsey, who is the Second Army commander. And the previous year, he'd been 13 Corps commander on Sicily, and his men had got from you know, Casabile and Avila to uh, Syracuse, which was 10 miles. So there was some precedent for it. It was kind of at the upper end of what was going to be achievable. And as it turned out, there was a strong point on the hill overlooking Sword Beach that they hadn't been able to neutralise beforehand. It just so happened that the kind of probably the best qualified engineer, military engineer in the whole of the Normandy front was on that particular strong point. And he had made it absolutely brilliantly. And it is, you know, in terms of positioning, quality of the build and all the rest of it, it's the best best one on the entire Normandy coastline and it just so happened to have been blocking Caen and and it just so happened that the air forces and naval forces couldn't neutralize it which meant the infantry had to do it the tanks were late joining them because of the you know narrowness of the beach and the kind of the tide particularly fast tide coming in um, uh, and so there was this sort of bunching up of stuff and so it didn't happen as quickly as possible ever since then that kind of the blame for that has been laid at kind of Montgomery's door and of course it's absolutely not Montgomery's fault at all um, and, and I think it's really worth, worth saying that the whole plan, for example, is, you know, OK, Monty is the overall architect because he is the overall commander in chief of ground forces. But everybody agreed with the plan. There wasn't any dissenting voice at all about the plan for, for D-Day. And that is because it was the best possible plan with the resources available and the resources particularly of, of shipping which is limiting how many men they can drop. I mean, obviously, you want more men coming in and more shipping and all the rest of it. You have to do the best you can with the resources you have, which are obviously you know, not insubstantial, but, you know, the Allies have always wanted more. But, but that is why they're kind of bunching up on the, on the, on the British and Canadian, Canadian beaches. Oh, OK. Well, I've heard criticism recently, but you're saying it was quite impressive. I mean, it's just incredibly difficult, you know. So all the things that happen. So, so first of all, the air, the airborne bit that all works. Um, the, the, the air forces bit, the kind of you know winning air superiority that works. The intelligence plan works brilliantly. Um, every you know every every landing craft does get to the right beach. They might not land at exactly the right spot, but they do get to the right beach. 
you know, all the naval forces get through. The incredibly difficult and challenging and fraught problems they face with clearing mine channels, and there is a particularly deep mine channel between kind of seven to ten miles off the coast. You know, they are overcome too. I mean, j just that alone is is an absolutely phenomenal achievement. Don't forget, you're having to, com you know, this is combined forces stuff. This is air, land, and sea all having to cooperate together. This is strategic air forces, tactical air forces operating together in tandem with naval forces and landing forces. You also have to remember that the plan, um, you know, is first kind of sketched out by Monty and his, and his combined operations multinational team in January, is given initial approval, is then refined and then is put to everybody by, uh, on the 7th and 8th of April 1944. And there is not a single person among the senior commanders who goes, I've got a problem with this plan. Everyone goes, yeah, it looks great to me. You know, I, I can't better that myself. The actual detailed planning of what it, who is going to land on what beach and when, that is down to the different armies and divisions that are landing there. That's not Monty's job and it's not Monty's planning team to do that. They are to be the overall architects. Then on the 15th of May, Eisenhower, of course, as a Supreme Allied commander, he, he gathers all the senior commanders together, plus the king, plus the prime minister, Winston Churchill, and says, right, is everybody happy with the plan? Because if you're not, you have a duty to voice your concerns now. You know, you, this is your time to speak up. If anyone can see any, any flaw in any of it, not a single person raises their hand. And that's because it is the best possible plan with the resources they have. You know, Carlo Deste wrote an entire book on how awful Monty's plan was and blaming Monty and his phase lines and all the rest of it. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just absolute nonsense because the plan is really good and D-Day is an absolutely, you know, incredibly, incredible success. You know, not everything goes right. They don't get to con, they don't join up, they don't all achieve their D-Day objectives. But you, your objectives always want to be at the, at the absolute outer level of what can be achieved. Because you don't want to achieve your objectives and then go, well, now what next? Do you know what I mean? I mean, you know, it, it's D-Day is an incredible success because it doesn't fail. Uh, and, you know, any, any amphibious invasion like that is just fraught with so many stumbling blocks and things that can go wrong. And broadly speaking, it goes pretty, pretty much right. You know, casualties, for example, overall casualties for the Allies for D-Day are a third of what has been, you know, quite realistically expected. Again, that's that's pretty good result. Tell me what a unit had to do to get off that beach. The first challenge is to get over the beach obstacles, and that's why they're landing at low tide, so that they can actually see them. Um, and also, it's partly that, and it's partly to give them the space so that they can get their engineers off, and subsequent waves have got the room to kind of get onto the beach and get off again. So the first infantry are getting off, and, the, and what's going to happen is they're going to see little pillboxes, they're going to see concrete, they're going to see um, positions, they're going to see people firing at them, and they've got to somehow keep moving, get off, neutralise those, those strong points. And there's a whole series of, of Widerstandnester, which are these kind of German strong points, which are usually a network of little concrete bunkers and other bunkers and stuff, and wire emplacements and trenches. They've got to kind of take those out and then push on inland. There is obviously strength in depth, so you know it's not all about the absolute immediate crust. It's not the defences aren't just overlooking the you know the, the actual beach. There is stuff going on miles, you know, half a mile, a mile, two miles inland as well, which they also have to neutralise. 
But if you're German, of course, you know, you're being bombarded all the time. There's smoke everywhere. You can't really see what's, what's going on. Even if you're in your bunker, the sort of bits of concrete are kind of falling off around you. There's dust, there's grit, it's choking. There's a kind of acrid smell of smoke. You can't really see very much. You're completely discombobulated. Um, so all you can see is figures coming off the beaches and you start firing and stuff. And obviously, you're gonna, inevitably, you're going you're gonna to be able to hit some, but you're not going to hit all by any stretch of the imagination. From the Allies' point of view, from the British point of view, you've just got to sort of, you've just got to kind of keep going. You've got to keep moving. That's the key thing. You know, make, make yourself as hard a target as you possibly can. And that's what you're going to do. But, but whether you're German, whether you're Canadian, whether you're British, whether you're French, and there were some French commandos landing as well, or whether you're American, D-Day is spectacularly scary. And it requires absolute nerves of steel just to be there, whether you're carrying in a bunker, whether you're trying to man a machine gun, whether you're trying to get out of a landing craft. It, it, the, the, there's, there's huge amounts of noise, there's huge amounts of smoke, there's shells whistling overhead. You're not really sure what's going on. I mean, people always say, you know, I only knew what was going on kind of sort of 20 yards either side of me. That is never been more true than on D-Day itself. D-Day is just one day. There's a whole lot of days that have happened before D-Day, this air battle that's been going on, which is incredibly important, um, the whole intelligence beef that's been going on as well. And then following D-Day, there is another 76 days. You know, the vast majority of, of troops that fight in Normandy aren't landing on D-Day. You know, they're waiting in the wings behind to follow, they're the follow-up forces. And it is an unbelievably brutal, difficult ugly battle it really is and i've been i've been lucky enough to kind of you know travel the whole length and breadth of the entire battlefield uh, across some truly beautiful countryside i mean it is amazing when you get inland from the beaches and properly inland and you know you're going across where operation blue coat took place and down to mortain and you know and uh, you've been to the Falaise gap you know what it's like mont ormel and the you know lambert and lambert sedive around that where the corridor of death took place and stuff i mean just truly beautiful countryside and you suddenly start to kind of really understand how this battle unfolded and how how it kind of played out and it's really really interesting and there's there's lots to lots to be learned about it lots to be said about it um and you know i just find it kind of endlessly fascinating i've got to say let's get you back on the podcast talk about the battle for normandy definitely what's the big just before i let you go what's the biggest myth about d-day probably omaha beach i think uh, you know uh, saving private Ryan, that, that opening kind of 20 minutes it, it is a it is a an aspect of what happened on on omaha beach on d-day but it isn't the whole story by any stretch of the imagination um, I think it's that and the American Airborne. I think there's so. Oh, I'll tell you another really big one is Pont de Hoc. What am I talking about? That's probably the biggest myth. Uh, you know, because you, you know what it's like, Danny. You can drive around Normandy and you can see those little sort of brown tourist pictures of, of kind of, you know, rangers climbing up the cliffs. The climbing up the cliffs bit was an absolute walk in the park, it was a total cinch. The bit where the rangers were really amazing was not on D-Day at all. It was on D-Day plus one and D-Day plus two, where they were isolated, running out of ammunition and having to face kind of amazing enemy counterattacks and, and seeing them off. That's where they earned their spurs. The actual climbing up the cliffs was, was a total doddle. And actually, there was precedence for that in Sicily the year before when Paddy Main and the SAS uh, uh, did a, a very, very similar assault on Cap Muro de Porco, completely overran the um, Italian positions. When the Rangers got to the top of Pont de Hoc, there weren't any guns there at all. They'd been moved inland. And by 8.30, they'd, they'd been discovered, abandoned, spiked and blown up and destroyed. So, you know, that was kind of job done. Um, and I think they'd lost something like two wounded, something like that. I mean, it was, it was just, the casualties were almost nil. So that's probably the biggest myth. Your book is out now, Normandy 44, D-Day in the epic 77-day battle for France. Head out and buy it, everybody.
It's available. In fact, don't head out and buy it. It's available at historyhit.com slash books, like all our books. Thank you very much, James. I feel the hand of history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. He tells us what is possible, not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you.